When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, Hit Parade listeners. Before we start this bridge episode, I have a brief announcement that's important to all Hit Parade subscribers. Like many media organizations at the moment, Slate is getting hit pretty hard by what's going on with the economy in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. We want to continue doing our work, providing you with all our great podcasts, news, and reporting, and we simply cannot do that without your support. So, we're asking you to sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program. It's just $35 for the first year, and it will go a long way to helping support us in this crucial moment. As part of this effort, we're going to be making Hit Parade episodes available to Slate Plus members only. This will begin with the full-length episode coming on April 30th. To listen to that episode in full and episodes in future months, you'll need to become a Slate Plus member. This is the best way to support our show and our work, and we hope you will pitch in if you can. Your membership will also give access to everything on Slate.com. You'll get ad-free versions of this and other shows, and you'll get bonus segments and bonus episodes of other Slate podcasts. Plus, once you become a member, you can sign up to do trivia with me on our Hit Parade The Bridge episodes. So, to sign up now and support us, head over to Slate.com slash HitParadePlus. That's Slate.com slash HitParadePlus. Thank you so much. Hey, everybody. This is Chris Melanfi, host of Hit Parade, Slate's podcast of pop chart history. Welcome to The Bridge. That's the original 1962 version of Oye Como Va by the king of Latin music, Tito Puente a man whose last name, Puente, in Spanish literally means bridge. A native of New York City, where we are recording today's live edition of Hit Parade the Bridge, Puente was known also as the King of the Timbales. Oye Como Va, his best-known composition, which translates roughly to Listen How It Goes, has been recorded by dozens of musicians, including Carlos Santana, who took it to number 13 in 1971. National Public Radio later named Oye Como Va one of the most important musical works of the 20th century. And these mini-episodes bridge our full-length monthly episodes, give us a chance to catch up with listeners, and enjoy some Hit Parade trivia. This month, I am delighted to be joined by Eduardo Cepeda, a Mexican-American writer and the music editor at the Latin media site Remezcla. 
Eduardo spent years as a touring musician and DJ and eventually founded Mother of Pearl, a record store that went on to become a label, a music festival, and a marketing agency. He splits his time between Brooklyn and Brookline and has a five-year-old who loves dancing to La Romana. Eduardo Cepeda, welcome to The Bridge. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. You know, obviously we're here to talk about uh, the most recent episode, uh, full-length episode of Hit Parade, which was all about the history of Latin pop crossover on the American charts. And I wanted to ask a personal question for starters. Uh, growing up, did you consider Spanish language music part of your regular music diet or were Anglo pop and Latin pop separate worlds for you? They were both essentially because growing up as a, as a first generation immigrant, right? Like you're, you're kind of trying to fit in. You're kind of trying to like do whatever your friends are doing. So I was listening to, you know, grunge. I was listening to Nirvana or whatever. Um, but then at home, you know, I would hang out with my dad who played congas and bongos and stuff. And so we would listen to like a lot of salsa and stuff like that and like play along with that. And so they were both part of my daily life, but they were separate from each other for a really long time. Right. And that's interesting vis-a-vis the topic of the podcast episode, because I was trying to pinpoint the moment when these worlds, at least on the charts, started to merge. Um in the 20th century, songs like Juan Taramera and Oye Como Va became standards, um, and they resonated with Anglo audiences. Why do you think that was? Well, I think on one hand, it's because they were just very popular, very catchy songs that played on various, you know, maybe commercials or movies or just became a part of pop culture. But also, um, I think they were easily accessible to non-Latino audiences, and I think maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here, but that's how that crossover ended up happening because uh, maybe a lot of songwriters kind of understood what Anglo audiences would consume and integrated that into their songwriting for bigger pop stars to kind of create this crossover uh, thing that happened at the turn of the century. Right. And how do you perceive 20th century crossover? And I guess what's the moment for you where this crossover passes from the world of novelty to something a little more legitimate? Well, I guess uh, when, you know, Ricky Martin was on the charts. Upside, inside, that was a great moment in and of itself, but it, it was very, uh, it was treated as like a tokenized movement almost. Uh, so it was great to see, in one, on one hand, it was great to see these artists resonating with Anglo audiences, but on the other hand, they were doing it in a way that was very, uh, it was playing to Anglo audiences rather than being authentic to itself, right? And so at the time, I thought it was kind of cheesy. Uh, now in retrospect, I almost think, well, there was no other way at the moment to do it, right? That was the way to kind of start opening the door for Bad Bunnies and Cardi B's to kind of just do themselves how they want to do it, right? So it was an important moment, uh, albeit a very complicated moment. Right. And so I would imagine as a fan of Latin music yourself, watching those worlds collide yet in this kind of watered down way must have been a little surreal for you, right? As a fan of both sides of the radio dial, so to speak. Right. I mean, it was, it was, especially at the time, I mean, we didn't take it like people, at least in my group of friends, right? We didn't take it very seriously. Sure. Um, actually, I was a fan of Shakira before she quote unquote crossed over. And the sound she was performing back then was very different from what she ended up doing to kind of reach Anglo audiences. She was doing like very kind of almost basic, but catchy alt rock 
in the, in the late 90s. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I actually saw her on that very first tour. She only played for like 40 minutes because she didn't have that many songs. Um, <laughs> so when she came out with these huge stage setups and, and you know, the dancing Cobra that she had on stage, that was just like, <laughs> what is going on here? You know, uh, it was definitely a, a big pivot. I guess because she, it was like she was defining her own crossover, right? It was she was crossing over, but it was it was kind of almost in the other direction, taking the parts of American rock she wanted and fusing it to her own thing. Right, definitely. And and yeah, even if you look at her early stuff, she wasn't doing technically Latin music. All she was doing was American rock music in Spanish, basically, right? And so, right. in a sense, when she, again, crossed over, which is a term I kind of don't like, but it's, it's a necessary term, uh, she was adding, and she was incorporating more Latin elements, right? So, and and especially some of her Arabic elements too. We we forget about that. That she's also Lebanese. So we've already touched on this a bit, but what I'm calling the version 1.0 Latin boom of '99 to 2001. Were you excited, dismayed, confused by what Ricky Martin and J Lo and Enrique all did during that period? Uh, probably all of it. <laughs> um, you know, again, it was it was. It didn't sound like the Latin music that uh, a lot of Latino communities were listening to at the time, even though people Latinos did get into Enrique Iglesias, did get into Ricky Martin, mm-hmm. did get into Shakira, J Lo. I would I would exclude J Lo from that a little bit uh, because you know she wasn't really playing those tropes so much. You know, right. she was just making the kind of music as you mentioned in the podcast, the kind of music you could have heard Ashanti maybe make. So totally. In a sense, she was kind of one of the first to do this kind of crossover thing without playing into certain tropes. Right, and it's as if crossover was baked into what she was doing from the jump. It wasn't like Ricky or Enrique who had one thing first and then translated it over a period of singles. She just kind of jumped right in with both feet with Rodney Jerkins and, you know... Uh, Murder Inc. Pr- exactly. productions and went straight to hip hop pretty quickly. And it might have to do with the fact that she she was from the Bronx and not from Puerto Rico or from right. Colombia. You know what I mean? Right. Let's talk about reggaeton, which becomes a force in the early 2000s. It exists in the late 90s, but it really kind of takes over uh, in the aughts. Um, why do you think it translates across cultures, and why is that dembo rhythm so irresistible and so adaptable? Well, I think, first of all, if you look at where the Dembo rhythm came from, and and Dembo is a very, you know, if you talk to one of some of the old school reggaeton producers, they'll tell you, like, Dembo is one very specific rhythm that was used. Um, mm-hmm. And now it's kind of used as a catch-all term for what the reggaeton driving beat is, but it's not technically Dembo. Um, that Fair. beat, that rhythm, uh, crosses all kinds of cultures. I mean, it comes from Africa. You hear it in Afrobeats. You hear it in soca. You hear it in dancehall. Still, obviously, it came. Dembo specifically came from dancehall, so it's a very Afro diasporic beat, right? So, uh, it's not just reggaeton, right? Uh, what you see with reggaeton specifically is uh, it came from Panama. Like a lot of Jamaican artists were sending records to their cousins in Panama, and they started rapping in Spanish over it. And then eventually, it became what was called underground in Puerto Rico. And they started adding, you know, maybe like timbales. They started adding bachata guitars to it. And that's kind of when it became what we call reggaeton, maybe like in the mid-90s or so. Um, so it kind of took on a little bit more of a Latino identity in that moment. Yeah, and I would imagine at some point, reggaeton became 
the the sound that to your point it wasn't just the dumbo rhythm it kind of sprouted tendrils and went everywhere right and i imagine that however long you've been writing about latin music reggaeton has probably been essential to you know if not a a sun certainly a planet around which lots of moons orbit in latin music i would imagine yeah and and one of the Uh, one of the interesting things to see about that is if you look at the beginnings of, of, of reggaeton, when it was still called Underground, you have Daddy Yankee there from 1991 making recordings when he was, uh, I think, 13 years old. And he's on wow. some of the first, the most seminal reggaeton or pre-reggaeton recordings with DJ Playero. So you have someone who was there from the very beginning when it was being recorded in like Playero's apartment in the Caserios of San Juan, who's now still on top of the reggaeton game that you rarely see that in a genre where somebody helped found the genre and is still on top of it. That blew my mind. Yeah. When I was putting together the episode, realizing the depth of DY's, you know, career, both before the breakthrough moment in the aughts and after the breakthrough moment, the fact that it's 20, this is a good transition to our next topic. It's 2016, 17, and he's still enough on top of the game that this is the guy that Luis Fonsi reaches out to for Despacito. Like, this is not somebody who's just kind of, you know, a has-been. He's still topping the Latin charts routinely. So let's talk about that moment. I mean, whatever we think of Despacito, do you think that it helped bring about a permanent foothold for Latin pop in the mainstream. Absolutely. Um, and again, like you said, whatever you think of that song, um, it did it did serve a purpose, right? It uh, opened the world's eyes to uh, an entire genre. People maybe hadn't been paying attention. There was this misconception that reggaeton had died in, the, in like 2009, 2010. It was a big misconception because the sales were still there. Just the media outlets stopped paying attention after a while, right? Um, and so kind of what Despacito did was bring back the, the spotlight to the genre. And then, for example, we had a column at Remesla before I actually worked there. There was a history of reggaeton called Tu Pum Pum. I don't know if that column would have done as well in a pre-Despacito world. Mm-hmm. When we put out this column a few months after Despacito, you know, it, it, was a, it had a huge impact. And, and Luis Fonsi, I spoke to him once and he, he completely accepts that he's not a reggaetonero, that he was fortunate to land in this world and be allowed in it for one song but he right. recognizes that this was pop music with a with a light dembo rhythm behind it and it's not necessarily reggaeton per se i think that kind of self-awareness is cool to hear from someone like that <laughs> i've i've admired just as an aside you know when despacito was rampaging on the charts in 2017 and i i myself wound up talking about it on some tv shows and things Every time I saw interviews with Fonsi, he was wonderfully self-deprecating and self-aware and realized he was he had a tiger by the tail and he knew it was a moment and he was not letting it get ahead of him. Exactly. And he and he, you know, he said he's not gonna try to recreate that moment either. He he no. writes pop ballads on guitars and that's what he does, and that's what he's always done. And so And he's good at cool. it and yeah, he knows definitely. what he's good at. Exactly. So I really feel, and it sounds like you agree, that we're living in a kind of post-Despacito world in terms of Latin crossover now, and it, it, it blows my mind, as I said in the podcast, how much less compromised crossover Latin music is now at the turn of the 20s than it was at the turn of the millennium. 
Um, who have you been watching? You know, Bad Bunny is the obvious touchstone. I talked about him in the episode, but are there other folks that you're watching in this this brave new world that we're in? Yeah, definitely. And like, you know, first I'd probably say that at this point, because of some of the charting we've seen, like with Cardi B and Bad Bunny and J Balvin, some of the stuff we're seeing with Bad Bunny, um, I don't think it's a crossover anymore at this point. <laughs> think it's just part of our fabric right of what the demographics of this country make up and listen to um and so hopefully that's opened the door for some artists you know some of the artists i'm watching are a lot of dominican dumbo artists which is kind of to give a quick explainer to people a super sped up almost version of reggaeton um there's artists like kiko crazy gailen namoyeta uh, they're doing really amazing stuff out of out of the dominican republic and obviously el alfa was kind of the the, the biggest name out of that so far um, there's artists like Tokisha, who is just doing like this, you know, trap and, and dembo sound out of Dominican Republic. Uh, there's Nino Augustine from Panama, who's someone that everybody should be watching. Eladio Carrion, who's also on Bad Bunny's label. And he's actually the guy who, in a sense, discovered Bad Bunny. They were... Oh, interesting. He, he was working with Rima as a record label, and he knew Bad Bunny from college. And he introduced him to the label head at Rima's and said, hey, you should check out this kid. And then... We have Bad Bunny now, so huh. there's definitely a healthy, healthy ecosystem of artists in San Juan right now that are just magnificent, and we should be keeping an eye on. That's fantastic. Well, Eduardo, I can't thank you enough for joining us for this live episode of The Bridge. And uh, where's the best place for folks to read your stuff? And, you know, I don't write as much anymore now that I'm the editor. Um, sure. But read what we what I edit, which is on remesla.com. Um, and of course, there's my I post uh, stories on my Twitter, which is Eduardo Cepeda NY. Great. We'll post links to that on the show page when this bridge episode posts later this week. Well, for now, thank you, Eduardo, so, so much for being on Hit Parade, The Bridge. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Now comes the moment in Hit Parade the Bridge where we do some trivia. And joining us from Atlanta, Georgia, is Tina. Hi, Tina. How are you? Hi, I'm great. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks so much for joining us. I hope you're having better weather down there than I'm having in New York today. Uh, last night was rough. Last night was rough. We were uh, quarantined in the bathroom overnight with the tornado warning. So, Right. But we're, we're fine. Everybody's fine. Okay, glad to hear it. And I also hear that, speaking of uh, our current coronavirus existence, uh, that you have postponed a, uh, an, a musical event in your life until we are out of quarantine. Do you want to tell me about that? Yes, it wasn't postponed by choice. It was postponed by coronavirus. Um, but I was able to get tickets to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony this year, uh, which is in my hometown of Cleveland. And nice. my favorite band in the world, Depeche Mode, is being inducted. So I had to go. That's awesome. Uh, I am a Depeche Mode fan myself. I've seen them live a couple of times. And uh, I'm a Rock Hall voter, and I got to vote for them this year. And I was thrilled when they made it in. So that'll be exciting. Well, excellent. And I imagine 
that you are also a Slate Plus member. Is that right, Tina? Absolutely. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, as I remind folks every month, we only open our trivia rounds to Slate Plus members like Tina. So if you are a member and would like to be a trivia contestant, visit slate.com slash hit parade sign up. That's slate.com slash hit parade sign up. All right. So Tina, I think you know how this works. We've been doing this long enough. Going to ask you three questions. The first will be a callback to our last episode of Hit Parade, and the next two will be a preview of the next episode of Hit Parade. Are you ready for some trivia? I'm as ready as I'm going to be. Here we go. Question one. Last month, I discussed Latin pop crossover hits from the early rock era, songs that even Americans with no Latin heritage would recognize. Which of these Latin standards was not a Hot 100 hit between 1959 and 1971? A. The Girl from Ipanema. B. Juan Taramera. C. I Like It Like That. Or D. Oye Como Va. Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I, I, I Like It Like That's Gotta Be One. Oye Como Va. I'm going to say Juan Taramera. I'm sorry. The correct answer was C. I Like It Like That. The 1967 salsa classic by Pete Rodriguez was a regional hit in New York City, but not on the Hot 100. Only the covers in later decades by the Blackout All-Stars and Cardi B with J Balvin and Bad Bunny became Hot 100 hits. Okay, that was a tough one, but we're going to jump to our preview trivia. Question two. These four albums all came out in 1983, and each one generated multiple top 40 hits on the Hot 100. However, which one generated the most hits? A. Billy Joel, An Innocent Man. B. Lionel Richie, Can't Slow Down. C. The Police, Synchronicity. Or D. Cindy Lauper, She's So Unusual. Ooh, this is my era here, too, so there's a lot of pressure. Um, I, I know they all had multiple top 40 hits. I want it to be The Police, so I'm going to go with C, The Police, Synchronicity. I am sorry again. The correct answer was Billy Joel, An Innocent Man. Billy's homage to the music of his youth in the 50s and 60s spun off a staggering six top 40 hits between late 1983 and early 1985. Richie's and Lauper's albums generated five hits apiece, and The Police's generated four. All right, one more chance here. Are you ready for the third question? Okay. Question three. Billy Joel topped the Hot 100 three times in his career, but not always with the songs for which he is most famous. Three of these hits peaked at number three on the Hot 100, which was the only one to reach number one. A. Just the Way You Are. B. My Life. C. Tell Her About It. Or D. Uptown Girl. Hmm. I am... <laughs> That's tough. Basing this solely on the music video play that I, I remember, I'm going with D, Uptown Girl. You are so close, but the answer is C, Tell Her About It, from the same album. It was the lead single from An Innocent Man, and it topped the chart in the fall of 83. Joel's follow-up hit, Uptown Girl, spent more weeks on the chart, but couldn't get past number three. The same peak as Just The Way You Are and My Life. Well, I am so sorry, Tina, that we threw such tough questions at you. I mean, I, it was a perfect record, right? <laughs> it is, it is. Um, so now 
Uh, here's your opportunity to turn the tables and ask me a trivia question. I understand you have something for me. I do. I do. So, you know, I'm 50-50. I hope we keep our perfect record going, but I also <laughs> hope you get it right. Okay, fair. All right. In the last episode of Hit Parade, it was all about the Latin and Spanish artists that crossed over into the U.S. charts. So I wanted to sort of flip the crossover direction. Okay. Okay. The Spanish music producers chart, which is the billboard equivalent in Spain, started in 1959. The results were based solely on retail music sales until January of 2015. So my question for you is... What song was the first English language number one hit on the Spanish charts? Interesting. Was it A, Are You Lonesome Tonight by Elvis? B, A Hard Day's Night by the Beatles? C, Diana by Paul Anka? Or D, The Chipmunk Song by the Chipmunks with David Seville? Wow. I have a feeling it's going to be something quirky. First of all, I have no idea. So I'm guessing. And I'm trying to use deductive logic. I'll just admit that right up front. And something tells me it's not going to be something as obvious as the Beatles or Elvis necessarily. I think it's going to be something quirkier. I'm not sure I'm going to go all the way to the Chipmunks, but why don't we go with Diana by Paul Anka? Ding, ding, ding. You are correct. Wow. It was Paul Anka, and it was in May, in the week of May 11th, 1959. So it wasn't very long after the charts started. I'm so young and you're so old. This, my darling, I've been told. I was going to say that's quite early, right? And I think that's even before Are You Lonesome Tonight by Elvis, if I'm not mistaken, because I think that's like a 1960 single. Yeah. Um, yes. Are You Lonesome Tonight? Top the charts in 61, Hard Day's Night in 64. And I just threw the chipmunks in because of the white and nerdy episode. <laughs> well, don't we all love talking about the chipmunks? I, I managed to get the chipmunks into two consecutive episodes, the Christmas episode and the novelty hits episode. So I promise my listeners there's not going to be any more chipmunk songs for a very long time. Um, well, Tina, uh, thank you for giving me a question that I could puzzle my way through. I'm sorry that uh, you didn't get any of our questions right, but uh, nonetheless, you took part in our Zoom uh, Facebook Live experiment. So I'm very glad you were here with us today. I hope, well, I hope you had fun. You. Thank you so much. For those of you who are listening, uh, as you can probably tell from those trivia questions, our next episode of Hit Parade is going to be about the career of, yes, Billy Joel. A man who is commonly known as the Piano Man, but who I prefer to refer to as the Pastiche Man. Four decades ago, Billy Joel topped the Hot 100 for the first time in 1980 uh, with the song It's Still Rock and Roll to Me. We didn't mention it in our trivia questions. But it's the 40th anniversary of that and his Glass Houses album. And the interesting thing about Joel, whether it's that song or Tell Her About It, which we did mention... Uh, is that all of his number one songs are rather odd. Uh, none of them feature the piano prominently, uh, contrary to his common nickname. Um, and, you know, throughout my life, uh, growing up in New York City where Joel was very popular, I've met Billy Joel haters and worshippers. Um, and here's the thing on which all of us, the haters and the worshippers, can agree. Few hit acts tried on as many styles as he did. Um, Joel has now been retired for more than a quarter century, even though he keeps playing concerts, not currently, of course, under our coronavirus reality, but he's been playing a series of shows here in New York City at the at the Garden, Madison Square Garden. Um, so his hit-making career 
has been at a standstill since the early 90s, but he was a hit maker to the end. Uh, and again, he did it by not sticking to any one thing, not even the instrument for which he is most famous. Uh, that's going to be our topic and our angle on the next episode of Hit Parade. I once again want to thank Eduardo Cepeda. I want to thank Tina for joining us for our trivia. This episode of Hit Parade the Bridge was produced by Asha Saluja and coordinated by the head of Slate Live, Faith Smith. A huge thanks to her and her entire team for making this happen. And I'm Chris Melanthi. Keep on marching on the one. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.